Hello, Sublation Media viewers. It's me again, Douglas Lane. But I also wanted to tell you about something that's coming up on November 5th, which is a seminar I'll be doing with GCAS, the Global Center for Advanced Studies. Uh, it's called Can You Be a Radical Content Producer? YouTube Podcasting and the Left. Um, the seminar will cover uh, the ideas of Theodore Adorno on uh, the culture industry. It will... Uh, take a look at the ideas of Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent. Um, and it will also provide you with a strategy for how to become a content producer, an influencer, and a micro-niche internet celebrity like me. Um, in, in all seriousness, it, it will take a look at the, the limits of the digital uh, space, um, some of the possibilities that uh, are still available to us, and... Um, most of all, it will ask the question, you know, is there such a thing as an alternative media uh, and a left media? And today's diffuse, segmented, atomized, digital landscape. Um, just what has been done and undone uh, in our culture and in our politics. And that's what we'll be covering uh, in this GCAS seminar. You can sign up. It's 180 euros, which is actually roughly equivalent to $180 um, to be included in the seminar. Um, it will be running throughout November. First one is November 5th. So please do go sign up and uh, you can take a course with me uh, on Radical Podcasting. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes. What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Ron and Ursula, welcome back to the Diet Soap podcast. You are both members of um, News and Letters, correct? That's a Marxist humanist organization. That's right, yes. So um, uh, tell people a little bit more about yourself and, and, uh, and News and Letters, if you would. Well, News and Letters is a Marxist humanist organization rooted in the body of thought that Donievskaya worked out over several decades, uh, beginning um, with uh, three major works, Marxism and Freedom, Philosophy and Revolution, and Rosa Luxemburg, Women's Liberation, and Marxist Philosophy of Revolution. Mm -hmm. And they uh, unfold a, a very unique, perspective on the Hegelian Marxian dialectic that um, needs to be projected from our point of view in and for itself as a way to really give the left and the uh, humanity a direction in this hopeless period and what Donievskaya originally called our age of absolutes. So who was Raya Donievskaya? Um and when did those three works get written? So Marxism and Freedom was the first one, and it was written in the 50s. It mm -hmm. uh, took on um, the perception that Marxism is what Russia says it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it took on Stalinism and, and established Marxism as a philosophy of liberation placed Marx in the context of his time and his development. It's not a set of doctrines. It's an actual living body of ideas. And she was presenting the life of Marx as an idea. And it, uh, what was very new about it is talking about theory not being something separate from practice. So movement from practice as a form of theory was uh, was the theme 
of Marxism and freedom. Mm -hmm. Philosophy and Revolution came out in 1973 after the 60s revolutions all over the world didn't make it. Um, and a lot of the reason Raya thought they didn't make it was because they um, wanted to break with the old left, very rightly so, but in doing so, uh, decided they didn't need to do theory. They were just going to pick up theory and root. And she mm. says, you can't do that. It takes a lot of labor to become a theoretician and a practicing theoretician in the moment. So philosophy and revolution was trying to get at the unity of theory and practice, not from the standpoint of movement from practice, but from the standpoint of movement in theory and from theory. Mm -hmm. And then um, Rosa Luxemburg, Women's Liberation and Marxist Philosophy of Revolution was again an attempt at showing how theory united with practice also moves. And that is what philosophy gives us a handle on. That is what needs to be articulated. <laughs> and she takes on Rosa Luxemburg as the greatest of the second international's theoreticians. Um, she caught the uh, opportunism of the leadership of Kautsky and Babel um, four years before Lenin did. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, um, since philosophy wasn't her cup of tea, she dismissed uh, volume two of Capital when it finally came out as Rococo and was not able to see as much as she loved spontaneity, she was not able to see them as reason. So she was very much in favor of people fighting against imperialism that has emerged. Um, but she saw them as suffering masses, not as reason. And that was uh, part of um, uh, the unfolding of just how integral ideas and philosophy are to a life of a revolution. Okay, so I have a question about the separation between theory and practice. Um, and it, it actually, my question is about the word practice. I think that people often enough, or I've often enough thought about, oh, how do we get our ideas, you know, to be actualized? But, but uh, the word practice actually is very um, abstract, maybe, or covers a lot of ground. Um, when you're talking about practice, are you talking about the everyday reproduction of our lives? Are you talking about our personal and private practices and our attitudes and our relationships? Are you talking about only politics and political uh, struggle? When we want to bring together theory and practice, um, do we mean only that we want to make our politics uh, be shaped by our maximal goal theoretically? Or do we mean that um, we want to create a practice which is uh, informed by and acting out uh, theory, in which case we may already have achieved that. I mean, we already have a society based on labor value, right? It, um, it, that is an ideological construct, really. There's no natural reason why labor time should dictate how we produce things and how things are distributed. But the theory of, of labor, abstract labor, is in practice, you know, is put into practice now. Um, so the in the in the moment, uh, theory and practice are integrated, um, but just kind of behind our backs. It's not not uh, not in the collective imagination or mind, but just in our activity. So what what is meant by practice? Uh, when Raya talks about it, Raya does yeah, Raya that, about it. That's a very good question because it's not a uh, practice in general. It's practice as Marx's concept of history as creative act. Mm -hmm. History as the creative act for Marx was a reappropriation at every moment of what what hit, what's the essence of his humanism, which was the humanist idea, which was his recreation of the idea of freedom. So the humanist act comes from deep within the 
the given reality that we're all experiencing. And it's both uh, a high point and a, and a creative moment, like when um, in 1953, the East German workers said, went on strike and against speed up, and they said, we want bread and freedom. In other words, the, the, to take the idea of freedom itself that's inseparable from material limits and development that had so uh, sullied what Marx meant by uh, his uh, engagement with Hegel and beginning from, from uh, uh, accepting, accepting and having a lot of respect for material limits as well as, but at each stage, how people make something new of themselves and reach for something beyond those limits. And that's the essence of his idea of freedom. But the creative act, says Marx, is itself something that is uh, self-limiting in the sense that it justifies itself according to immediate circumstances. And it takes the thinking consciousness, it takes the philosophy itself to bring out that universal of that appropriation of the idea of freedom so that we can reach beyond uh, practice alone. And why it's why both practice and philosophy and theory are so important. Theory is important to, to say, oh, this is not just a, 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 a lot of people, like they used to say when the Polish workers revolted, they just go crazy when the price of kielbasa goes up. You know, it's all material, material, material. It's an actual quote. That's an actual quote. Hershula mm-hmm. can tell you a lot more about that one. Mm-hmm. But um, that there's a reach for something much deeper in self-determination in our everyday life, which was Marx's uh, multi-dimensional and multilinear concept of this create ongoing creative act in history. And philosophy is needed because the to at each stage to both theoretically meet that, but to also project the idea in and for itself. The idea has to speak, which is Hegel's expression. The self-determination in which alone the idea is, is to hear itself speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to see if I can restate what you just said um, and then ask a question or, or offer a, a, um, an an observation. Um, so for Marx and for Ryadonskaya, practice has to be um, the self-directed activity of humanity. It can't be um, uh, the um, simply a, re- a reaction. True practice would be an integration of theory and, and practice because it would be uh, in a self-conscious way, the taking up of ideas and the and the organized acting out of those ideas, right? I mean, it would it would be bringing those ideas into uh, uh, fruition. It would be, um, and through that, understanding how uh, the theories um, uh, and the realities that they produced were the responsibility of of humanity. Um, I think just to clarify it a little bit more. Like there's been a long-standing approach to philosophy from the beginning of, of thinking about philosophy in terms of discovering the substance of the universe as if it is outside in the world beyond us, right? So we are going to be mm-hmm. um, trying to discover the ultimate ground of reality. We're going to be trying to discover what is most enduring and true um, in order to, if you make it political, in order to align ourselves with the will of some something greater than ourselves, whether it's God or um, monads or water, but we want to we want to bring ourselves into alignment with an enduring ex- externality. And the new approach to, to philosophy, this critical theory, would say no. What that substance and our un- understanding of it. Um, are not separate, that we are changing the ground of our reality 
um, collectively. And so the integration of our under, uh, these understandings, these philosophical arguments, this attempt to, to ground our, our activity uh, with um, our own activity has to be achieved. Um, that is where we will find freedom. And that is the reality of our, our moment. That is the reality of our, our, our lives and our existence together. So um, that, it, 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 does that clarify? What? Uh, yeah, I think it's an important uh, setup for how to really break into Marx's Marxism because mm. what Marx does, and he both Marx and Hegel, as you say, they don't accept the idea of just this uh, studying the external and finding the truth outside of ourselves. But we're, in, in each case, it's how humans are implicated in what they consider the object. But Hegel says every stage of spirit, it works out the way in which it knows what it calls the object as itself. But Marx criticizes Hegel because it takes him so long to get to life. If you read Hegel on life in the logic and you read the 1844 manuscripts, you know, Marx draws so heavily on that. And what Marx is saying is that when you begin with life, you're beginning with both the external world that is uh, constraining our internal imminent development as the, our full humanity, our, as free beings that freely determine our life activity and also enable that. And it's that constraining and enabling that is, uh, uh, Marx says, is inseparable from nature, the external nature. It, he has an expression, if, if spirit and uh, human, human society is related to nature, it's simply that nature is related to itself. So for Marx begins from the, the the foundation that what makes us, what, what this creative acts always are uh, expressing is this power of humanity to freely determine its life activity through the particular social and material barriers that um, get in the way. And that it's the, the relation between that universal and particular has to be brought out. It can't just be left to the practice and the moment of practice that's still limited to these immediate circumstances, but that full mediation of the idea and its development has to be brought forth uh, a lot more explicitly. So when yeah. you with life, you, you, you change the whole debate about externality and internality, because this is an internal purposiveness that includes within it objectivity. Right. I wanted to point to point out something that you said about, but I think uh, Ursula, you said about um, the struggle of the masses against, say, imperialism as an example, as a kind of reason. And this would be a kind of life, right, where you're 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 bringing the external and the internal together, um, and the and this struggle uh, is continuing, um, and it is uh, the historical a kind of historical reason that and put into practice but i um wanted to to also say that in east germany when the workers were organizing to strike i mean i don't know the full story there but that came along the same uh, around the same time a few years before um the hungarian attempted revolution and um i know that in hungary that the 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 movement for the the desire for revolutionary refusal of the Soviet imperialism at that time was coming from within the Socialist Party that was connected to the Soviet Union. It was, and which not only was connected to the Soviet Union, but which went stretched back to the Second International and the First International. This 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 long his the, the an attempt to develop a political party that would be able to unite the workers and bring uh, socialism and communism into being um, was still operative in Hungary. It just was split and, and at odds with itself and had to, the, the left wing of that say was, was attempting to break off from 
the Soviets and and lead the Hungarian Revolution, um, which was you know continuing on from 1917 uh, on on their own outside of the realm of Stalin. Um, of course, that was you know put down, but uh, I don't see. Do you see the Hungarian Revolution as a break from the old socialism, or do you see it as uh, a way that that reason was acting out through politics, through the party. Well, what what you're describing is looking at history as a continuity, and there certainly is continuity in history, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But I see the Second International, for example, completely failing and falling apart. Mm-hmm. I don't the the things that claim to be the inheritors of Second International. Um, really have nothing new to say. It's the ones who opposed it, like Rosa Luxemburg and Nieplich and Lenin, for that matter, uh, who started on a different ground, not on Second International's ground of of, uh, building a mass party and gaining elections and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, with Hungary, again, it wasn't just Hungary. What started the Hungarian Revolution was the death of Stalin. Once Stalin died, Raya said she felt like an incubus was lifted from her brain. And she said, if this is how I feel here in the United States, just imagine what kind of flowering is going to happen in Russia itself and in the uh, Russian occupied or Russian territories, uh, whatever, uh, Russian sphere of influence. So what happened almost immediately afterwards was the East German, it was like within a few weeks, the East German workers said, we are challenging your conception of building socialism by saying we need to sacrifice uh, freedom in order to build socialism. And workers were saying, no, there is no such thing as sacrifice, putting off freedom for later. That is not the society we want to live in. And that conception of breaking with the established line of Marxism, of socialism that was being um, practiced in Eastern Europe as we're building socialism, that's exactly what the the East German workers and also the revolts within Russia, Vorkuta labor camp, um, we, th- I'm sure there were more, it's just the word of it didn't get out to the West, so we don't know very much about it, but people were saying no to their conditions of life and to the uh, propaganda that they were subjected to um, for several decades by then. And in Poland, it created, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, there was a club of a crooked circle um, which were who were intellectuals uh, discussing what is Marxism. And what they brought out was Marx's 1844 essays as opposed to the line that they were being fed by the established uh, Socialist Party. So when um, they brought out Yes, we don't want to um, reestablish capitalism. We want socialism. We want communism. But we want the kind of socialism or communism that Marx is describing in 1844. So it wasn't a a left wing of the established party. It was, yes, Koran and Modzelewski were part of the party. Their open letter was open letter to party members. But it was the it, it was confiscated and they were put in prison for it. That's not mm-hmm. <laughs> it's clearly an opposition mm-hmm. and not right, right. a wing of it, so to speak. So, yes, I think the Hungarian Revolution and just to speak of the Hungarian Revolution by itself, the way that developed is um, Imre Nag- Nagy, Nagy, Nagy. I'm not sure how to pronounce Hungarian names, um, wanted to introduce reforms. 
And in order to make those reforms acceptable to the population, he sent out young party members to various places to explain what the reforms were going to be. This was not any earth-shaking reforms. It was just uh, the normal party operation. But what happened is those young people went out to factories, to uh, agricultural places, and what they learned, rather than just saying, here is the new program that is going to be um, uh, enforced by the party, they listened. They listened to the workers. They listened to um, to the peasants. And they said, oh, well, if we are a socialist country, their voice needs to be heard. And the reforms that were then articulated based on this input that these young party members brought were much more sweeping and very much opposed to Russia as seen by the fact that Russian tanks came in to crash it. That was not just some wing of the Socialist Party. That was very much in opposition to the kind of ideas that informed the Socialist Party as it was ruling and right. and okay. revolution. So I'm going to put that, the, the, I could try to push back on all that, but I'm not going to, because I don't disagree with you fundamentally. I just have, I, I, I don't want to put the responsibility for the failures of, I mean, because if we believe, let, let me just put, uh, ask you this question this way. If we believe that the masses and the workers are, um, acting out reason, then isn't wouldn't it also be the case that the failures of the, so, the struggle for socialism, whether it's the Second International or or the Soviet Union, also belong to the workers? That 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 the the real source of the reason and the movement of history comes from the workers as and and the struggles of the masses, since that's the case, since they're responsible for history. Aren't they also uh, not also responsible for the failures of, of, of the development of freedom? And uh, why do we believe that uh, the expansion of their power, uh, given that they are the source of real power in society now, would uh, do something other than continue the kinds of failures that we've seen now? I mean, I don't believe I don't really believe this. I'm just sort of giving you the devil's advocate position. So wh what do you think of that? So, yeah, it's a good it's a good posture. I think that uh, a good um, issue to raise because this is part of the problematic of of our time in other in any time. In other words, what is the role of intellectuals? The role of philosophy. In other words, it's not to subsume uh, a workers' movement. It's not to subsume the concrete and the unfolding of that movement, but is there a role at all? In other words, is it all just spontaneity? You know, the people like de Borde said, you know, when the revolution happens, the party should just disband and go another way. That's what Koran said. The party, you know, that we should just give up on any kind of intellectual organization, turn it over to the, the spontaneous movement. And the point, the point is that the, the, the dialectic that was developed by Hegel and Marx's recreation of that dialectic is integral to the very um, organism of liberation in a way that doesn't subsume that concrete under some uh, uh, narrative or, or, or grand uh, theoretical um, direction or prescription on human development. But as, a, as an idea that's both uh, um, never changes, it's a principle that never changes, but it's always open to the new. It's multidimensional. In other words, it's not just workers. Yeah, mm -hmm. workers have a have have a kind a, a, the kind of subjectivity that workers personify in their opposition to capitalism and the self alienation of the commodity, a form of production, is profound and concrete and needs to be developed, but its most profound and concrete development is in that universal of human beings 
taking hold of their life activity and freely determining it. And that universal never directly merges with any given stage of development. So that it's multidimensional from the start. And that's what one of the aspects of Marxist humanism that's so great that I, I was attracted from the start that it, it's workers, but it's women, it's youth, it's national minorities. And that's how Marx practiced this dialectic and, and worked it out, but never worked it out explicitly, returning to what he kept saying, uh, I know Hegel's the source of this dialectic and nobody gets that. If I just had some, a little time, I'd go back and write another, I think, five printer sheets, which is like about 100 pages, and tell people what is rational about this dialectic that we have to hold on to. Well, he did do that in 1844. And his, his, uh, his, uh, the unfolding of that practice of the dialectic is what we need, what is needed to unleash the internal barriers to these movements that are in end up being incomplete. Okay, so I just heard if I, I'm I'm let me see if I can recapitulate what you just said and then and and I now I think we can finally about halfway into the first uh, part talk <laughs> about you talk about Ukraine. Um yeah. okay, so what I think I hear you say when you when you use the word dialectic here is that the dialectic especially if you expand the subject uh, from proletari just a proletariat to all oppressed peoples that uh, all these different categories, whether there's women or sexual minorities or uh, national minorities or perhaps um, uh, uh, the, the uh, less developed parts of the world. When, when you, that, that dialectic then is um, uh, the, the capacity for humanity to take up its own freedom. That's, that's how you conceive of the dialectic. Is, am I am I wrong about that? The capacity for humanity to freely determine their life activity and address the barriers to that free determination. Right. Okay. And social. Yeah. Right. Right. And so you're going to find that uh, struggle to address the barriers to that self determination and overcome them the most within the oppressed people of the world. The people who are oppressed are going to be the ones who are struggling to overcome the barriers to their own self-determination. Is that right? Well, it's, I don't take it necessarily as a, a quantitative thing, um, but yeah, in general, you know, people push to... If, if you're dealing with someone who is not at all oppressed, yeah, and they're yeah. not likely to be struggling yeah. to, their, their, to, to develop their self-determination. Right. Right. Okay. I, so that now... Ukrainians, the Ukrainians struggling against the Russian invaders become, uh, I think for you, part of the subject of the, of the oppressed masses struggling for their self-determination and, and uh, the, the, to be able to take responsibility for their own lives. Is, is that right? Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. In other words, and, and, and when you talk about quantitative, you know, they were being uh, invaded by the second largest army in the world and this uh, huge uh, uh, um, assault that continues to this day that has no regard for life or dignity, dignity or explicitly talks about its aim being the extermination of the peop of people, especially Russians in Ukraine, who don't recognize the, the Christian uh, nature of this uh, development. If they don't recognize it, we have to exterminate them. And that, pro that, that practice of extermination is something Ukrainians knew very well. They knew it, you know, it was practiced in in the in Syria to destroy the Syrian revolution and yeah it was total it was total and the Ukrainians shocked the world I don't mean uh, they did the the that they um, shocked the leftists necessarily or well they just certainly did shock the left but they shocked the the leaders of the world because 
they were they were telling uh, Zelensky, get out, we'll get you out immediately. And they didn't get out. And they not only, not only didn't get out, they stopped the, the invasion cold. You know, the, the planned siege of Kiev in a, that was supposed to just take a few days. This, uh, this total onslaught was just supposed to terrorize them into subjugation. But they were telling the world, no, you don't have to fall into that abyss. That again, that totalitarian abyss that personified in this uh, in Putinism, that has taken away all rights and uh, ability to express and be free in, within Russia itself, and in some ways is a reflection of that totalitarian abyss that everyone accepted in East Germany. You know how how uh, fast how completely unheard of was the idea that there could ever be a revolt from under totalitarianism in East Germany in, in 1953. And it shocked the world. That how can these people, they were telling the world, yes, you can fight this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think the Ukrainians personify that as a beacon to the world in their struggle for national uh, self-determination. It's a multi-dimensional Russian, Jewish, Ukrainian movement. Mm -hmm. And well, that's the. Well, I, um, so what what I uh, try to think about is the way in which the even the terms that you take up when you are fighting um, have to be some some part of what you're responsible for. Um, so like the fight for national sovereignty, for instance, which I don't oppose, you know, in any kind of reflexive, you know, maximal communist way still needs to be examined. And also, um, the way in which you are, uh, when you're struggling, um, taking the weapons that you have available to you, the resources you have available to you, um, uh, into your hand to struggle within the reality of the current moment has to be examined as well. So in this instance, um, the arming of Ukraine by the Trump administration before uh, the invasion and, and by the Biden administration um, before the invasion and the continued support from the West for the Ukrainian efforts has to be taken into account. It's it, it not simply the self-expression of the, of the uh, Ukrainians, but also their self-expression through the his, his, historical moment and through the relationships they have with the totality, right? So there's that. And then the invasion from Russia itself has to be understood within the context of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, the rise of neoliberalism, the irresponsibility of the West towards Russia, particularly in the, in the 90s, the irresponsibility of the, of the world leaders um, to uh, the people. Um, so like when I think about this particular invasion of Ukraine, the, as a very American-centric person, I think about how it is returned to the Cold War it feels like the return to the Cold War, and it feels as though um, the obvious uh, opportunity of the collapse of the Soviet Union was squandered. That the 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 the, the idea that there would be uh, some sort of continued conflict between Russia and the and the West after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I don't think it can just be taken for granted. It seems to me to be a failure that the, that, that the, uh, that the Russian society wasn't incorporated into, to Fukuyama's new end of history, liberal order. I mean, what, so, so when we see it that way, we have to start questioning the liberal order itself, which is the order, which is, uh, arming the Ukrainians and which U Ukrainian people, at least through their leadership, are struggling to join by joining NATO and joining the EU. So I just um, feel as though if we isolate the Ukrainians as a single subject by themselves facing an oppressor, oppressor it's easy enough for us to to um, in a, in just continue to support 
uh, NATO and, and U.S. policy of, of massively increasing the arms and rejecting all peace negotiations. But if we step back and try to take up the totality of the moment, that totality which the masses of the world are responsible for because it is, in fact, them, especially the working class, who are responsible for mediating the world, then we have to be critical in a different way. We have to be critical of both the, obviously, Russian acts of aggression, but also the, the way in which the West and even the Ukrainian government help to set up these conditions and put people into this position. So I would say you are absolutely right. There was a failure. There was a possibility as the Eastern European countries were changing for mm. something else. But the failure didn't come because the West did this or that. Um, capitalism does what it's, is it's in, in its interest. I would not expect them to do anything else. Mm -hmm. the, the failure was actually within solidarity. That was the begin. That was the actual beginning of the end, right? Polish the, solidarity. The Polish solidarity uh, in 1980-81 was an opposition to the way the the government was running things. The whole, pretty much, the whole population joined, and while the workers were saying we are reaching for self-running of our enterprises, um, the leadership was saying, no, 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 don't do that. It's going to cause a Russian invasion. And the legacy of the movement of solidarity, rather than supporting the revolutionary impulse that was trying to establish the kind of new order that you're talking about was perhaps a possibility, um, rather than... Um, support that and give it voice, um, they instead said, no, let's just do self-limiting revolution so we don't incur the Russian invasion because, of course, there was a lot of experience with that. So, I, I, I'm not an expert on solid on that, that on the solidarity movement. I know of it. I mean, I was alive when it was going on, and I, I, I remember it. Uh, um, remember Reagan loved it. Uh, um, but <laughs> and um, uh, and I and I do see it as being a continuation of like the Hungarian Revolution or the the strikes in Berlin. It it, it was a from within socialism a rejection of the Soviet uh, empire, imperial state um, and a de demand for workers' freedom. You know I would agree with that. But was it also what I claimed was po we were sold as being po that would be possible uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, which was not some socialist vision, but Fukuyama's vision of the end of history through and the, the permanence of liberal capitalist bourgeois modernity. I mean, that's, or in another um, place to look for this kind of vision of bourgeois relations succeeding would be in the, the old movie Network. Do you guys remember the movie Network? Um, <laughs> and, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And Ned Beatty is the CEO who pulls Howard Beale, the anchor who's gone crazy, aside and says, listen, you chump, there are no nations. There are no peoples. There are only, there's only AT&T and DuPont and Texaco. There's only dollars and ruples and yen. And, and uh, you know, the Soviets are over there looking at their accounting uh, and, and trying to increase efficiency just like we are. And soon enough, the whole world will be one big market, one big uh, uh, corporation f uh, where, you know, mediated by money and not in all these little petty squabbles over religion or ethnic differences. They'll be put aside. Our children will know peace. Every uh, boredom will be amused. Every... Uh, anxiety will be tranquilized, <laughs> and that's the vision of liberal capitalism. That's the vision of of of, of the society that of, of the West, you know. Um, and we, um, uh, you know, that obviously failed. That 
that triumph of liberal uh, capitalist modernity after the collapse of the Soviet Union was uh, a mirage, and the continue in the struggle for self-realization continued after that. But it also the crisis of that liberal capitalist bourgeois society continued. The failure of that capitalist of that revolutionary struggle, the liberal, because that is a revolutionary utopian vision. Every anxiety tranquilized, you know, every <laughs> that is the, the Ned Beatty CEO is utopian bourgeois revolutionary. And so I just, you know, I, I guess what I'm getting at here, and this is some of the people who are watching this have heard me talk about Ned Beatty. I come back to him all the time. Um, but what, what I, I, I guess what I want to, to clarify is, was there a chance in the solidarity movement to do something more than simply join an EU that hadn't been formed yet, you know, more than just join capitalist, liberal, bourgeois modernity, leaving the uh, Eastern uh, European and, and Soviet uh, sphere behind and being taken up by the, the capitalist West in that moment. Um, was, was there actually a chance there? Or w- if they had succeeded in breaking free from the Soviet Union, would that not have just meant? Uh, becoming part of Ned Beatty's universe? Well, the solidarity was um, an expression of people's desire to be self-determining, right? That's what we're talking about, self-determining. What came to power in 1989 in the name of solidarity was merely an echo of it, only a political echo. It didn't have the same... Um, fire, the same content anymore. Um, they, it was clearly just, we're going to take over running of the capitalist state. Um, mm. And that did not have an opportunity to do anything other than become a capitalist state. That that was the, the original failure was the failure of the imagination of the leadership of solidarity in 1980-81. That's where where I see the failure. Um, The vision of the movement in 1980-81 was very much in line with Marx and opening possibilities. But by the time it was falling apart in 1989, 1991, Putin coming to power, all of that um, did not carry the same spirit. It was already, um, I don't want to say too late, but it was already going in a different direction. It's a good example of what I was uh, hoping to project in, uh, in relation to other moments, what's the role of intellectuals? In other words, you had a lot of intellectuals around and they came up with an idea of self-limiting revolution. What we have to, the, what determined their uh, concept of revolution was we have to not go too far and cross a line so that the, to um, avoid, the, blood avoid the bloodshed of the Russians invading, that that was the determinant. And mm-hmm. it's again, as against self-limiting revolution, what what Marx projected was fully developing that idea that appears as as a universal in all its dimensions. Ashula wrote a beautiful uh, essay on the women in Poland that the, the Western feminists completely missed. The the women were the bedrock and the uh, uh, animating principle of the of much of the unfolding of this revolutionary consciousness. And so it's all these different ways in which the idea comes to be that's not unilinear and unidimensional, but it's multidimensional. You know, you look at um, some place like Iran today, these women are out there mostly young and taking on that totalitarian theocratic state, and it catches on uh, among the Kurds. It's a Kurdish woman, first of all, and the Kurds are 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 fighting an actual war against the state. They're being bombed like crazy, and 
different places are going after the the uh, state authorities, and now workers in the South are going on strike. So it's all these elements together are are moments of saying enough with this uh, um, oppressive religious uh, nationalism that has the, that I, I know you point to in your in your video as being the next stage of human development. But these forces, whether in, in, in Iran or in Ukraine, are saying we don't want that. We're pointing to something different. And yeah, the West has its own agenda. The you know Biden is a Cold War warrior. You know the one thing they did is they can pass these huge defense budgets and they can test out their weapons and and, and use their weapons and use their weapons more. and they can show oh oh gee you know we can do this and they and they can prepare for the real showdown which is with with China that's coming and they have their own oligarchs. You have someone like great. Uh, Crazy Musk, who puts up the Starlink, but then he starts controlling it. Say, oh, I don't want you to go over into Crimea and these other places because I want to make a deal with Putin. You know, I, and they sell him, they tell him to go to hell. This guy is going to kill us. They being the Ukrainians. Not yeah, when you say that Musk wanted to make a deal with Putin, do you mean that are you talking about his Twitter poll? Or are you talking about? Yeah, well, yeah, he actually called deal. Putin and said he proposed, and Putin is praising him up to the, up to the skies, and now he said, and and now Putin is saying, well, we want maybe we want to have negotiations and a ceasefire, and coming out of the Kremlin are, are these uh, uh, leaks that uh, Daily Beast has uh, at least reflected, which I believe saying. Putin, he knows he's losing horribly. He doesn't have an army that has any morale. And these, uh, this call-up is not working. And the Ukrainians are, are still winning, even though he keeps lobbying these missiles and trying to terrorize the whole population. And so he wants a break so that next year, he can, or a few years down, he can come back with an even bigger army and do it all over again. Hmm. So you 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 feel like the best outcome would be for the Ukrainians to continue to push the war forward, drive the Russians out of Crimea and the Donbass and those uh, illegally annexed regions of well, Ukraine. I think the outcome has to be determined by Ukrainians themselves. They don't want to be under the whip of total extermination. You know, they've had enough of it. They had enough of it from 2014. And to this day, the, the, Putin lost the Russians, even in the Donbass. They don't like him. They don't want to be under that regime. And that, I, I, my, my perspective is from the point of view of the subject on the ground to both support their, their struggle and also to project this total philosophy of freedom that can make a difference. So um, I just have two thoughts. First of all, I, I, when I hear someone say, well, the Ukrainians have to determine, um, you know, their own outcome, we should let them decide what they want for their own nation. I, I understand that I, 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 as a kind of moral principle, I, I think people have the right to self-determination. But on the other hand, self-determined, not all self-determination is not equal. Um you know the self determination of of uh, Ukraine without uh, U.S. weapons and aid and drones and and Skylink and, and intelligence, and the self determination of Ukraine with those things and the and uh, and NATO maybe air support and and the and the feeling of backing from um, the massive military might of NATO in the United States is completely different. Those are not the, that's not the same kind of self-determination. So, you know, the cynic in me would say, yeah, okay, the Ukrainians can be self-determining. U.S. aid should end. Let them fight for themselves. That's what, if they're going to fight for only themselves, for their self-determination, then let them do that. And I support them in their effort. Good luck. If, if they are struggling for the 
of uh this of for socialism which by the way you know that is not at all clear that that's what this ukrainian struggle is about but if they're struggling for even just what is best for the mass of humanity as a mass which is really i think as a working class then we have to ask a completely different question like what should what's in the interest of the ukrainians when combined with the interest of the U.S. workers, when combined with the interest of the European workers, when combined with the interest of the Russian workers and beyond, you know, and that clear, it's clear to me that the threat of a nuclear Armageddon is not in any of our interests. So the, the pressing for a peaceful resolution, pushing for that, and the rejection of the leaders who brought us into this conflict and made us all face collective self, you know, uh, collective termination, extermination as a real living threat and had bombs drop on some of our heads, they need to be opposed. So we need to have a working class movement, which would oppose Biden in the United States, which would oppose Putin in Russia, which would oppose Zelensky in Ukraine. I know he's very charming, but nonetheless, and, um, uh, and and so far, that's my position. Well, see, I have a lot of sympathy to what you're saying, but concretely on the ground within Ukraine, there is challenge to Zelensky and his vision. And in fact, there are uh, people in Ukraine who saying Zelensky is saying that as a result of the bravery of the um, everyday people fighting Russians, he's going to promote um, housing, right? Better housing for workers. Mm -hmm. And the leftists, the, the left in Ukraine is laughing at it. When we win, this is not what we're fighting for, just to have a better house. We, mm -hmm. They are challenging the entire reason of what Ukraine is and how, and, and they are trying to bring a different conversation about what it means to be Ukrainian that is much more international, much more universal and very explicitly universal. And that's what I feel I certainly have solidarity with. It's not Zelensky as um, figurehead of the Ukrainian state. It's the challenge to Zelensky that is coming from the people who are fighting and who are experiencing the limitations of their life and have ideas of how to uh, live differently. Yeah, and I have a little different perspective on this question of uh, being for Ukrainians defending themselves. You can't defend yourself against arms if you don't have them. You can't defend yourself. In other words, they they did stop the, 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 the siege of Kiev, but they're not going to defend themselves against the extermination campaign that Russia had uh, uh, been practicing without some help. In other words, there's the, you, you can't deny them the right to ask for help and to get it. And part of the help comes not only because the NATO wants to test out their weapons and they have their own agenda. There were mass demonstrations throughout Europe. There were mass demonstrations all over the world to set, to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. And, mm -hmm. and to me, it's the, the to, to look at everything from the uh, prism of global interstate rivalries and and disintegration of capitalism and this globalized capitalism and all the machinations that are going on between states, to look at it that way, it just denudes the agency of both Ukrainians and people who are supporting them, you know, en masse, because they know that this is uh, um, a beacon against something that's a horror and that people... World War II isn't that far away. In Europe, it was a, a lot more of a, of a total disaster than it was here. And they know that this kind of um, encroachment of to totalitarianism and fascism and war that Putin personifies, Putin's Russia personifies, is has no good ending. And 
why did Marx support national self-determination? It wasn't because he thought that was the end. That was only the beginning of what he called revolution and permanence. Because in the process of throwing off your overlords, Mm -hmm. there's a whole new level of engagement, a whole new level of the bringing in the population that's a participation that's much deeper than any bourgeois democracy. That's what's been happening in Ukraine, especially in the Russian regions like Kharkiv. People who identify with Russian culture, who voted for the, the, the even the leaders of the parties that were uh, the more Russian, uh, affi- uh, uh, had more affinity with the Russian uh, uh, language and culture, they were some of the greatest um, uh, moments of self-organization and self-support of this war because they don't want to be part of going into that abyss, that totalitarian abyss that says you either accept Russia as this Christian uh, empire that's the, the, that, that's, that's just part of Russian DNA or we're going to exterminate you. That's what the, the Russian uh, representative of the Donbass was saying just the other day, that this is a form of Satanism that these Russians yeah. possessed. No, look, we're going to run, an, uh, and we have this magazine, Sublation Magazine, where we're running an article from Zizek next week where he talks just exactly about that that uh, speech that you're referring to just now about you know calling the West Satanists and all, all of that kind of thing. And... Um, um, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, what I want to do right now, actually, listen, we've got it. We've had about an hour of, of, of conversation. This will be, um, the recording that I'd like to give to the public. Do you have, um, another 45 minutes or so to talk and sure. Okay. So I want to go get some coffee and I'll send you another link in about 10 minutes and then we'll, we'll talk it some more, but, um, I want to, I like, I want to like, I think we disagree on some uh, things that are happening now politically. And it's really frustrating to me because we agree a lot. I, I think about the fundamental vision of Marxism and, and socialism. So that, uh, and I, you know, if we're, we're lucky, we're not in a party together because we'd probably end up splitting. Right. But we're not going to split. We're going to continue to talk and, um, um, and, and see if we can get to the bottom of this. Eventually, not probably not in this conversation. Um, I just will close this up by saying I do. I, I know that standing up to totalitarianism will take risks and courage. But I also worry about the kind of risks that we're running up against in a world that has nuclear weapons and, and where the threat of tactical nukes is, is being uh, put on the table by, you know, seemingly. Uh, it's being played up by the West and by Putin. Like I can't make heads or tails of, of what the real threat here is, but I I would hate to see this all end, and you know, with a mushroom cloud. I would I uh, not just because I fear my own death, but I, I have kids and I want them to have a future, um, and it certainly would not be the way to achieve uh, communism, despite whatever Posada said. You know, with after, <laughs> but anyhow. I'm going on and on. Um, so we'll, when we come back, let's talk about how you feel about this nuclear threat. And also let's talk about some of the history, go back to the history of the s- struggle for socialism and the new movements that arose in the sixties and, and Raya doing Skaya, because I do think that this connection to new movements, to um, our, uh, a vision of the struggle for socialism that goes beyond strictly proletarian politics all of that's informing your position on Ukraine. Would you yeah, agree? And, and I, I'd like to go into more of this question of sublation in um, in a Marxist humanist sense, right? Rather than as my corporate, you know, LLC registered trademark, you can't no, use that. I, I was looking at your video. <laughs> right, I, right. I, I was looking at your video. It made me want to elaborate on. Yeah, we should. We I should talk. Be a, might be a distinctive um, a, a way of starting a discussion you know i'm always very pleased to have people talk to me about things i made and like tell me what they think of my work so we can do that as well i'll be 
thrilled um, in, in a narcissistic way by that. So I'll, I'll, I'll see you in just 10 minutes or so, and I'm going to end the recording here. Okay. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.